Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, this is a topic that should absolutely infuriate everyone. As I've said often on this show, Australia is a land, a land with boundless plains to share. It is populated by an abundance of tradies. And until recently, we had a culture of robust pragmatism and determination to build stuff. These factors alone should ensure that we have an excess of cheap housing, but we don't because politicians can't help meddling in the industry and making it worse. We have had decades of dictatorial town planning, cynical environmental obstructionism, extortionate taxes on land and housing, out of control immigration, and a laissez-faire attitude to foreign investors. Now we are at a point where young Australians can barely afford rent, let alone a deposit on a home of their own. Three quarters of rental properties have increased their rent in the past year, according to the Reserve Bank. The normal figure is one third of that, and worse is yet to come with rental increases of 8% forecast for next year. This is unforgivable. Renters are the most vulnerable people in our society, often living week to week. To them, rent is almost always the highest expense, and even a small increase could push them over the edge. I heard a heartbreaking anecdote recently from a friend who was inspecting a rental property in Sydney, along with hundreds of other hopefuls. A young single mother carrying her child was among them. She was about to be evicted from her current home and tearfully begged the agent, offering him $3,000 in cash as a deposit, to accept her application. She was on the verge of homelessness with a child. The federal Labor government's response is almost as heartless. The government is focused on building what it calls affordable and social housing, most of which, most of which will be little more than cell blocks in overcrowded areas that do little to satisfy the needs that our real home provides and which their inhabitants have little chance of owning anyway. Here is an edited reproduction of Robert Menzies' famous Forgotten People speech from 1942, generated by my multi-talented CEO, Jack Bulfin, using an artificial intelligence machine in which Menzies explains the true significance of a home. The home is the foundation of sanity and sobriety. It is the indispensable condition of continuity. Its health determines the health of society as a whole. One of the best instincts in us is that which induces us to have one little piece of earth with a house and a garden which is ours, to which we can withdraw, in which we can be among our friends, into which no stranger may come against our will. 
My home is where my wife and children are. The instinct to be with them is the great instinct of civilized man. The instinct to give them a chance in life, to make them not leaners but lifters, is a noble instinct. Stirring stuff. That speech pretty much defined post-war Australian politics. Until now. When was the last time you heard an Australian politician talk like that? If politicians are good for anything, it should be for loudly espousing the institutions and principles that make our country such an enviable place to live. And chief among them is the link between home ownership, family and happiness. Instead, we get squabbles like this. My question is to the Minister for Housing. AMP Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver has noted, quote, the resurgence in underlying demand on the back of very high immigration, and that 400,000 arrivals this year equates to demand for an extra 200,000 dwellings. If the AMP could see the link between very high immigration and housing shortage, why didn't the government? Really? You come in here and you talk about migration when it was going to be higher under under those opposite, Mr Speaker. It's going to be higher under those opposite. And indeed, Mr Speaker, the they did very little about chair, housing to the chair. in government, particularly when it comes to social and affordable housing, when they're now blocking the Housing Australia Future Fund bill in the Senate. The bill that would provide 30,000 additional social and affordable rental homes on top of all of the other things we're doing in our ha broadening housing agenda. Order. I would say Members to the on my left, the manager of opposition you come business. in here and you say we're not doing enough when it comes to migration. The former leader of the opposition said we're doing too little too late. The numbers were going to be higher under you and now you're actually trying to block the housing we're trying to provide. I mean, seriously, that is what you are doing. Order. You are absolutely trying to stop what we are doing when it comes to more housing. Order. So what exactly is the housing minister, Julie Collins, who, interestingly enough, grew up in social housing herself, doing to solve this problem? Well, let's ask her opposition counterpart, housing spokesman and Liberal MP, Michael Sukar. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Fred. Great to have, be with you. Michael, we hear the government throw around this $10 billion figure a lot these days. But correct me if I'm wrong, that $10 billion is simply the amount that the government is investing in the future fund, which has nothing to do with housing at all, and it's the returns on that investment that will supposedly provide these 30,000 dwellings. Is that right? Yeah, that's spot on, Fred. The, um, the government um, obviously has the view that saying $10 billion you know, sounds good and looks good on a media release, but it's not a $10 billion investment into housing, as you say. Uh, it's really a um, um, an investment through into the future fund of $10 billion, um, uh, of which any returns in the future could potentially be put into housing. And had this fund been set up last year when the future fund actually shrank, then not only would it not have uh, spat out any returns, it would have shrunk. And so... Uh, there wouldn't have even been a dollar for housing. So we think this is a, a, a the wrong way to 
fund these sorts of initiatives. Um, firstly, you need to provide certainty if you're going to do it. And secondly, borrowing $10 billion in order to put in a fund in the hope that there are sufficient returns to then invest into housing. Well, that's going to cost the Commonwealth $400 million a year in interest alone just to set up that fund. So, um, you know, it's typical labour economics, quite frankly. Um, it's a, a risky bet, really, on the stock market. Um, and it's going to be costing us $400 million of interest a year. So we but, oppose it and we'll continue to oppose well, it. Well, good, policy. good. I'm, I'm glad you do. Julie Collins is always standing up. And, and the other figure, other than $10 billion, which, as we've established now, is completely bogus, the other figure she throws around is these 30,000 dwellings that she's going to build. Where does she pull that out from? Well, look, they're taking their sort of best estimates, uh, you know, stick your finger in the wind and see if you can come up with a number. Um, let's just take the minister on face value for a, for a second. Let's just say, unlike anything that the Labor Party has ever done, uh, whether it's pink bats, whether it's building school halls, let's just assume that this thing doesn't unravel uh, as we all know it will, and that they do actually deliver 30,000 new homes over five years from 2024, because that's what they're promising. They're saying between 2024 and 2029, we'll deliver 30,000 new homes. Assuming that happens, at the same time, Fred, they're proposing to bring in 1.5 million migrants. Now, um, you know, you can even be as bad as the Labor Party with maths and work out that 1.5 million people does not fit into 30,000 homes. So, I mean, the whole thing is laughable. Um, you know, if it wasn't so serious, you would laugh about it. Uh, but we see yesterday new dwelling um, approvals are, are down back to their lowest since the dark days of the Gillard government. We've got first home buyers down. Uh, we've got activity in the building sector down. Um, let's be frank, uh, you don't hear the Labor Party ever talking about first home buyers. That's just not something they're interested in. And all of those things mean uh, that whether you're renting, whether you're trying to save for your first home or whether you've got a mortgage, you are demonstrably worse off. And now the Labor Party is saying, yeah, we, we hear you on all those problems, but we're now going to pile in another 1.5 million people. And we've got no idea where they'll live, but, you know, do your best yeah. and, you know, hope for the best. It's just crazy stuff. Well, this policy has brought a, an unusual alliance together. You and the Greens are on a unity ticket where is the government's policy now? It's stalled in the uh, Senate, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, the Greens uh, oppose this for different reasons to the coalition, obviously. The Greens, um, I mean, where we do agree with the Greens is that we all agree here that there's not one dollar that is guaranteed out of this policy. And uh, you can't virtue signal and say we're going to build 30,000 new homes when you can't even guarantee there'd be a dollar to do so. Um, so that's where we do agree with the Greens, but they oppose it for very different reasons. Uh, it's, it's in the Senate. Um, the Greens have made a list of demands and are willing to negotiate. I'm not willing to negotiate on this. Um, now is not the time to be borrowing $10 billion, paying $400, $400 million a year on interest to then put into a fund in the hope it, that it spits out a return, um, when it could quite easily go backwards, quite frankly. 
the Greens are willing to negotiate. I don't have visibility and I'm not privy to those discussions, but, um, you know, we've seen it before. The Labor Party and the Greens will often do deals on these things and the Greens will presumably drag Labor even further to the left into even a, a more radical position. So uh, we'll watch and see what happens, but our opposition to this uh, extraordinarily bad policy, um, uh, inflationary as well at the worst possible time, uh, is not going to change. Well, in my intro, I played a, uh, a generation of a, a, a section from the famous Robert Menzies' famous Forgotten People speech where he talks about the spiritual significance of housing. We generated it using artificial intelligence. It sounds very impressive. But I mean, now that you've mentioned how you and the Greens and Labor part ways on this issue, how do you feel about the importance of a family home to Australian lives? Well, I think it's got to become, and it is, in my view, the defining issue of our time. And I think uh, when people ask me, you know, you've been in politics for 10 years, um, why are you still there? Um, one of the things I point to is, I think as Liberals, um, our defining role is to make sure that we do everything humanly possible to ensure that every Australian who wants to work hard has a realistic opportunity of owning their own home. As Robert Menzies said, having their own small piece of this country. Uh, where no one can come against their wishes, where they can be exactly who they want to be. Um, and that, I think, is going to be the mission for our party because we, we, for a long time, had some level of bipartisanship over the importance of home ownership. The Labor Party now have dropped that entirely. They are very comfortable with a generation of people renting their whole lives. We don't accept that, and I will never accept that as formerly as our housing minister, now as shadow housing minister, um, our job will be at the next election to make very clear to young Australians and indeed all Australians that if you're willing to work hard under the approach and policies we take, you will have a realistic opportunity of owning your own home. And um, we'll have a lot more to say. Obviously, we recommitted our policy uh, in the budget and reply speech uh, that we would allow people to access their own superannuation savings for a deposit for a new home and then be required to reinvest that into super once they sell that home. Um, but to use that money, which is your money, as a deposit when you need it, and we'll have much more to say about how we can help Australians get into a home because, sadly, the consensus that we had for many decades is now gone. Uh, if you want to own a home, um, it's really only the Liberal Party and National Parties that represent your interests. Yeah, well, I support your uh, policy about superannuation. As, as former Liberal MP Tim Wilson used to say, superannuation, people start saving for superannuation or for retirement when they first start working. And, uh, and then hopefully when they retire, might have enough money to buy a house. That's actually back to front. They should be buying a house and then saving for retiring. Now, the Labor Party, the Labor government does have a token scheme. It's the Home Guarantee Scheme in which the government guarantees a loan of up to 95% of the property. Um, effectively, it means families don't have to save up such a large deposit in order to get into their own home. But this, Michael, entails considerable risk, doesn't it? What if there's a recession, the real estate market tanks, 
and these new owners foreclose because they've missed repayments. The government's left holding the baby, isn't it? Well, I'm a big supporter of the Home Guarantee Scheme because I created it. Um, it's, uh, it's quite perverse that the Labor Party's out um, spruiking that policy, which they inherited from us. It's actually been in operation for a number of years. One of the things that we tried to do, Fred, to make sure we avoided the pitfalls you've just spoken about is um, these are not subprime loans. These are people who have to pass every credit check, every credit assessment that would ordinarily exist for a bank. So you know, in no way, shape or form are these being offered to people who otherwise wouldn't be uh, able to access credit elsewhere. I, I deliberately set the scheme up to do that. The fact that the Labor Party's out there spruiking the Coalition's Home Guarantee Scheme, though, tells you everything. That the only policy to help first-home buyers that exists today is a landmark coalition policy. Um, now, you're right, there will be a risk of, of some defaults, but my advice is that the, the defaults under the Home Guarantee Scheme are actually lower than the general market at the moment. Now, you know, it's one of those things we'll have to keep watching, um, but... Um, you know, you can imagine if the Labor Party had tried to set up a scheme like this, uh, I don't think they would have been as prudent as we were in making sure that really you're, you're only admitting um, really good creditworthy borrowers to the scheme. Uh, that's what I think has underpinned its success so far. But we'll have to keep an eye on it. And particularly, uh, as I'd expect, interest rates continuing to rise, um, we will have to be alive to those risks into the future of those people with relatively low levels of deposits in home ownership in a market that's falling. I would just add one thing, though, Fred, and it's perverse, but because the Labor Party has mismanaged housing so badly and there are so few homes now being built, I think it's unlikely that we see wholesale reduction in values simply because... Uh, the supply of housing just cannot keep up with demand. So I think you're probably less likely to see those sorts of defaults occurring simply because the value of homes will be held artificially high, not because of anything good the government's doing, but because there's no supply of new housing. There's no new homes for people to own uh, or live in, which is just going to, I think, keep prices up. Um, so... It's a, it's a really sad situation and being compounded with one and a half million migrants coming in over five years. Yeah, well said. And uh, my mistake, I didn't know that was your own policy, so you defended it well. And, well, you'd be, uh, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was Labor policy, Fred, because it's the only thing that helps first-time buyers. Um, and, you know, of course it's a coalition policy because anything that helps first-time buyers would not be dreamt up for, by Labor, I can assure you. Yeah, yeah. Just one more question on housing and then we'll move on to a couple of other important topics from the day. But you, you did mention the, uh, the supply or the quantity of housing stock in Australia uh, being restricted and therefore the price of it, the value of it being kept artificially high. Now, from my reading of the situation, the Australian uh, population can be divided almost perfectly equally into three different groups. There are the people who have paid off their homes, roughly, these are each, roughly around 33% of the, of the population. They've paid off their homes. There's another third who are in the process of paying off their homes. And there's another third who have yet to, uh, you know, bite the bullet and um, put down a deposit and buy their own home. Now, 
the majority clearly have a vested interest in the existing price or the value of their uh, primary asset continuing to grow up, uh, to, to go up, increase. Uh, I think a lot of Australians suffer under the delusion that as long as their house price is going up, the economy is in good shape. But that's, that's not entirely correct. Now, Michael, it's a long question, but I'll get straight to the point. I don't think many parties, political parties in Australia are prepared to do much to significantly increase the stock of housing in Australia and decrease the value because it would put though that two thirds of existing homeowners offside. What do you say to that? Look, I think Fred, your basic point around there being a bias towards wanting to see um, stable house price levels is true. And I would share that bias to be frank because uh, not that I'm just ignoring the, as you say, the third of people who are renting who have, who have not, who are not either owners or or, or have a mortgage in, in the process of paying off a home. But um, the reality is, we've seen from the US in 2008 what can happen to a financial system that's highly leveraged towards the housing market and what that can do for the broader economy. The the health of, in my view, that the sign of a healthy economy is not rampant house price growth. I mean, you you want stable long-term growth, but what we've seen in Australia over recent years is, is quite remarkable growth because we have just not had supply being able to keep up with demand. And we'll see that on steroids now over the next five years if the Labor Party has their way. Yeah. My approach, and I will have a lot more to say about this before the election, but my approach is we have to do something drastic on housing supply. And I, I can tell you, even if I was able to deliver hundreds of thousands of new homes that met the demand that's out there at a good price point for first-home buyers, that will not in any materially, material way, in my view, impact the prices of those established homes in established suburbs throughout our country. So I don't think that you really need to pit one group against another. I know some people will instinctively think of it in those terms, but I think there is a way of drastically improving supply, um, opening up land for those greenfield opportunities, um, having density in places where it makes sense to have density. Uh, I mean, I don't think the great Australian dream for everybody is living in a studio apartment in the middle of the Sydney CBD. I think for a lot of people, it's still having a, a backyard. It might be a modest backyard, but having a backyard, having a home, um, and I, you know, my objective is to go to the election with a serious and significant policy offering that is not fluffy, is not airy-fairy, is not talking about getting state planning ministers around a table to argue and sing kumbaya and come, because every minister has promised that and it's never happened. But actually to come up with a policy that says to the Australian people, we are going to deliver this additional supply. This additional supply will be there for first-home buyers. Um, after all, that's what Sir Robert Menzies did. And we saw what he did, taking home ownership to record levels in this country um, and doing it in a way that I think will get a lot of criticism. Uh, there will be a lot of state governments and planning ministers and state housing ministers who won't like what I have to say. Um, but let's be frank. Status quo right now, Fred, 
means that there will be millions of Australians into the future who never get an opportunity to own a home, and I refuse to be a part of that. And, indeed, indeed. Uh, the Australian people will have a really good opportunity to vote for home ownership at the next election. Well, Michael, who cares what the state housing ministers, <laughs> how they respond? It's the, it's the people who are struggling to even pay the rent these days who really matter. Now, let's talk about the cashless debit card, because this was a policy under your government which helped prevent Indigenous our Indigenous brothers and sisters blowing welfare money on grog and gambling in places like Sejuna, East Kimberley, the WA Goldfields and Bundaberg. Labor, as we all know, withdrew the card in October last year on the grounds that it was racist. The consequences of that were tragic and, it must be said, perfectly predictable. Today, you finally got your hands on some data outlining how tragic that was. I've had a quick look at the data and there was a marked increase in antisocial behaviour and drunkenness in those communities. What did you see in the figures, Michael? Well, Fred, it was the most or the, the least surprising thing of all time that um, Labor abolishes a card that requires people to spend money on food and medicines and essential items. They cancel that card so people can now spend more money on drugs, alcohol and God knows what else. And those communities are now suffering with public drunkenness, domestic violence, antisocial behaviour, um, crime, um, the reports that you refer to out of East Kimberley, again, completely predictable, mm. um, sadly predictable, tragic though, uh, because we warned the Labor government, we said to them, if you abolish this card, more children will be neglected, more women will suffer domestic violence, um, more businesses will be forced to close down because of uh, the antisocial behaviour in the area. And in each and every case that is happening, whether it's, as you say, Sejuna or East Kimberley or in the gold fields, um, and we're obviously seeing similar things in Alice Springs. I mean, the Labor Party have an ideological aversion to income management and don't care if that means, as I say, more kids suffer, more women suffer, more communities suffer. And I think it's shameful. I think in this parliament, we criticise each other on all sorts of things. Um, but it's very rarely that you see an instance like this where the government was on notice. They made a decision with their eyes wide open. They knew what this would do. And quite frankly, I don't know how some of them can sleep at night knowing that this is what they've inflicted on really innocent children, women and communities. Yeah, the outcome was nothing short of, of misery and, and horror, really. Um, but, Michael, why did it take so long for this data to be released? Well, because there's a, uh, you know, a very deliberate um, program from the government and a number of agencies to try and limit the information that is provided. And, you know, getting information out of the government um, in a transparent way is impossible. I suspect that they've always known, as I said, that where this abolishing the cashless debit card was going to go. And so they always knew that the data and the evidence was going to be quite damning. So they've undertaken a process to try and hide that data and that information. And um, yeah, it shouldn't rely on leaked reports appearing in newspapers 
in order to get this information. But to be frank, Fred, um, all you need to do is go and walk down the main street of one of these communities um, and ask the locals what it was like now compared to when the cashless debit card was in place and they will tell you the full story and you'll see the dysfunction and antisocial behaviour in front of you. Uh, it's not a secret, but the Labor Party here in Canberra are trying to uh, trying to keep it, um, you know, as quiet as possible uh, to their eternal shame, quite frankly. Now, Michael, very quickly, because we've run out of time, on a, on a related topic, the uh, bill for the uh, voice to parliament referendum passed the House of Representatives today. The government gave itself a round of applause. How do you think it's going to t uh, turn out? How do you think it's going to pan out from now on? Well, look, I'm not, I'm not a disinterested bystander, Fred, so I'm a bit biased. I mean, I strongly oppose um, Prime Minister Albanese's voice, um, the Canberra voice. Um, and the reason I oppose it is that, you know, I've always been a proud Australian uh, of the firm view that we all have a quality of citizenship. When you've got a background like mine, uh, my father a migrant to this country, and when you grow up in a migrant family, the one of the things that gives you great heart is, you know, it doesn't matter how long your family's been here, you are just as Australian as everybody else. And that doesn't matter if you've got family that arrived on the first fleet or that go back 60,000 years or became an Australian citizen at last night's citizenship ceremony. The minute you're a citizen, we're all equal, irrespective of the blood flowing through our veins. And I think it would be a really sad day if we ever departed from that basic principle that we're absolutely equal. And once you're an Australian, uh, we don't look at any of those factors out of your control, including your heritage. So for that reason, I'm really hopeful that the Australian people uh, turn down this very risky and unknown constitutional change, uh, not only for equality of citizenship purposes, but again, when you've got the best democracy in the world in one of the most prosperous nations in the world, you'd be crazy, in my view, to radically alter the rule book of the country being a constitution in a way where the prime minister says vote for the referendum and then i'll give you the detail later <laughs> um you wouldn't walk into a used car lot and pay for the car and then take it for a test drive two days later so um you know i'm hopeful that australians view it in the same way and uh, resoundingly say no to this prime minister's proposal Wonderfully said. Michael Sukar, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Michael Sukar, the federal member for Deakin and the opposition spokesman for housing. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. The great Alan Jones is up next at eight o'clock. And if you haven't noticed yet, the legendary Mark Stein, the funniest and most incisive conservative commentator in the world, is now on ADH. Go to our website, adh.tv, download our app to see his four shows a week live and all his past shows on demand. You will also find an abundance of great content from Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow, Alexandra Marshall and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.